Welcome, everybody, to episode 42 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. We're excited to get to our talk to our great guest today. We want to first say a quick thanks to our sponsor, Vanguard Safety Wear. We really appreciate them giving us an opportunity to talk to our great guests. Be sure to check them out for all your glove apparel needs. Today is February 16th, 2024, and we are psyched to be able to jam with our guest today. The emperor of the engine, the titan of training, Lieutenant Aaron Fields. The goals here are simple, bring in great guests and try to mine as much gold as possible. On the turntables today, we got Jeff Bryant and myself, Nick. And uh, thank you for coming on the show today, Aaron. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. It's good to see both of you. It's been a while. I'm sure many of our listeners are quite familiar with you, but we want to go over just a, a just kind of a 30,000 foot view of a bio. Uh, and of that, just want to talk about kind of your family ties to the job. Oh, you want? Oh, yeah. So um, are you guys covering that or am I covering that? No, why don't you? Uh, sorry, that was a setup. Why don't you tell oh, us a little oh, bit sorry, about yeah. your okay. uh, your family yeah, ties so, to the job? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right. I, uh, I'm, uh, I am the eldest son of the Fields family. Uh, there's two of us, myself and Ryan. We're both uh, work for Seattle Fire. Uh, our father worked for Seattle Fire and retired. Mm, I think August it'll be three years ago. So yeah. Um, but when I was really young, um, he was a bus driver and transitioned to the fire service. Uh, probably eighty four, eighty five, or something like that. So. As a younger kid, I, you know, he worked on bus driver schedule. And then as an older, a little older kid, he was working the fire, the fire side. So that was, that was that. Yeah. Was he a bus driver for the city or for yeah. the school district or? Okay. No, the city. He was okay. a bus. Did All right. So retirement kind of carried over at least a little bit, maybe? No. No. All right. No. <laughs> no. He's, no, he, uh, it didn't. He had 13 years. I don't know all the details, but there were 13 years as a bus driver and um, 30 something as a fire. Excellent. And then now uh, at Seattle, you're currently a lieutenant after uh, probably close to two decades as a fireman. And then. Uh, yeah, I, I was a nozzle firefighter for uh, 17 years. Uh, I worked somewhere before Seattle for six. Um, and But from the start to when I went to the number four position, I was a number four from uh, 17 to 21. And I've almost been uh, 21, 22. And I've been promoted for nearly two years. Excellent. I was on the back for a long time. Awesome. You've also spent a decent amount of time at the Washington State Fire Academy as an instructor. Can you tell, can you tell us just a little bit about what you've done there and how long you've been there? Yeah, I'm not there currently. I haven't been there for quite some time. I went to the Washington State Fire Academy early on for my first agency. And I got out and I was asked to come up a few years in and do something and helping up there. And and I did, 
but I, I largely did it to try to rectify what had been done to me and what had been done to a lot of people that came in through that process. And uh, I went up to try to, you know, suffuse and and give new people the skill set that they most need to start, and then they can figure out everything else. Regret. Um, and I was up there for only about three years, but it was so. Uh, it it afforded me a lot of learning because I would go up. And it's out of the city, so I would be able to uh, go up, and they had dorms, so I could stay and do two or three days in a row. And I got a lot of experimentation and trial of things up there while I was there, which allowed me to litmus test things that I'd been taught um, from other places. And I really was able to identify what not to do. That's what I learned from Washington State, uh, is what not to do, how not to treat people, uh, how not to design curriculum. And I've met some amazing people from up there, friends that we met up there 20 plus years ago, and it's they're great. But most of them have seen the error of, of the Academy's ways. And really the Academy is in a business of certification they're not teaching people how to fight fire and they're not willing to take their standards and and adapt actual tried and true methodology into the standard rather than forcing these firefighters through cookie cutter. And you know, the the problem is is that up there it becomes an a game of pretend, like four hundred BTUs of pallets in the corner, a four foot stack in a non-combustible building. And we have people up there that are still teaching. I mean, last I heard, they were still using what they call a quote dribble down, which is if you flow more than six gallons during simulated fire attack, you did it wrong. Like don't open the nozzle completely up. And that's what they're teaching new folks. And so what ended up happening was I was up there for Oh, about three years. And in this time, I had shown a couple of folks some stuff outside of the fire department at a mutual company drill. I had done something. I said, what was that? And and I explained it. And I explained who I learned it from. And uh, because citation of sources is, is critical um, and something that's largely lacking in our industry. And and then a week later, those those two dudes that used it on a fire and their training chief called me. And I, you know, and we taught, he they asked us to come teach a bunch of experienced people. And I think there was 20 people the first the first program. And all I did was take the stuff that I'd been working on and doing, and I put it through the lens of other disciplines, of an actual apprenticeship in the trades and actual study. I mean, this is in the 2000s. I got involved with psychomotor skill acquisition. I've been involved in it for 30 years now, since 94, and in and now three different disciplines and have been successful in all of those disciplines with this stuff and this, this 30 years of research. And so 
uh, we taught the first class and I was kind of doing this both things at the same time, but it got really contentious at uh, the academy. They brought in people that, um, you know, had to make a name for themselves instead of just doing what we need to do. They did what made them. And I finally got to the point where I was like, you know, simply put, fuck this. Like I'm having more of an impact uh, with, and, and not that I've ever set out to have an impact, but I was being, I was having more personal satisfaction and success from the outside teaching. And so I just, I was only up there for about three years and it is what it is. They, uh, you know, I've helped other places in the state no longer go to the state. And I think until we vote with, we vote with our, our training dollars, uh, it's going to continue because, you know, they've still got guys. I mean, to give you an example, my very first burn to learn, I remember this been almost 24 years and i remember it clearly and we're in this concrete building and it's just hot yeah and everyone's on their knee or on their bellies and the instructor is walking around because in in you know he was wearing two hoods and had another one shoved in his helmet and the idea of being a good firefighter was being tough and he wanted to impress these new firefighters with how tough he was. No one knew that he was triple shielding himself. And I'm in there looking at you and we got big eyes. Like what, how do they expect us to work? This isn't, I can't even stand up much less. It hurts to be on my knees and I'm on my belly. This is unrealistic. So that kind of whole piss and bravado. And, you know, for a person on a personal note, um, I was a little older and I'd done some stuff in different industries, including, working with people that were literal badasses like top three people in the world in their sport and uh, they never had to tell you they were bad. they just showed you and then helped you up and patted you on the back they weren't trying to impress you they didn't need to and it's just the mark of a weak a weak sense of self to have to worry about bravado which is coding new people that this is what you so my relationship with the washington state fire academy is pretty much non-existent um it gave me an opportunity to stretch my legs and and see modeled what is epidemic in the service incorrect i was only there for about three years well thanks for giving us that that rundown you know and that's uh it's a sad state, you know, and it's been like that for a long time. And unfortunately, you know, uh, I don't really see it changing for at least another bit of time until, uh, like you said, people start standing up and uh, not accepting it. Yep. But and taking and doing the work that it takes to rewrite your own standards, meet the, the NFPA recommendations and requirements. And do it in your own way, which you can do. It just takes time. And that time means labor, where you're going to have to do long-term projects. And we've done this uh, in multiple, multiple places. And the problem in the industry is that we don't have a culture of training. We don't train right. We're the one thing that's not like the others. 
and it happens all over in every conference. You can see it going on. Well-intended people that aren't doing a bunch of instruction, they're doing mimic, they're creating mimics. And there's a, there's a whole science to um, that's been being developed for over a hundred years into skill acquisition. And there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And one of those things that we also don't have is we don't have, so we don't have a training culture and we don't have a tradition of long-term projects. It is conceivable that in 40 years, you've done nothing other than runs that take more than an hour and a half to accomplish. Whereas most of the universe operates with research and development. They operate with hypothesis with problem solving and all we want to do is go to a conference and get another technique to put in the toolbox which utterly confuses the decision making tree and you get stuck in your oodle so it's like we don't have this tradition of long-term project design and how to set these incremental steps that lead to a solid foundation from which everything else can operate uh and and because you know training is the realm when I started, I don't think it's this way anymore, but when I started, it, Battle Fires was the realm of the incapable and the incompetent. And nobody wanted to go to training because it was a it was a it was a day shift. And then that switched and we started getting people that want to be there. And lo and behold, training puts out good material because the people that want to be there are there. The other issue with our industry is that we don't have a measure of success. So if the three of us were in the same weight class, I'm going to know who's better. And if we're looking at a single leg takedown, I'm going to know who's better. In the fire service, everyone's there. <laughs> there is no measure of success. And so because of that, it's people aren't even quite sure what standards and they haven't started to look at the Rubik's cube because they don't do things this way, and and so it just ends up being these these half understood concepts that are mimicking technique. So we we have to get to a place where, um, and I mean, you mean you both know me for a while. You know, I've been saying this forever. We have to get to a place where our system is altered to allow our tech, technical ability to grow not continually pursue the next fucking gadget. I mean, new tool in the toolbox. Tools are all dull and rusted because you don't use any of them. And there's no spatial context to when you would use them. You just went to a class where they lined up 19 doors that all looked the same and you forced them in 19 different ways. You didn't learn anything from that, except that it was a fun time. You know, you got to be able to break everything down into its base mechanic and build from that. Until we get to there, I think you're right, Jim. Yeah. These, so these these next three things in your bio, I'm just going to kind of uh, shadow over them uh, just because, like like we had talked before, we kind of want to chat about some different things. Uh, mm -hmm. you done you've done several podcasts, but the way that most people know you is, you know, nozzle forward, drilling for function, and then you also um, – you know, I've done uh, some papers and some things on the rule of threes. While while these things, you know, have uh, affected the fire service in a fantastic way, I also want to know how they've affected you and what they've they've assisted you in your career on. Oh, that's a great question. That's a fantastic question. That's one of the best I've had asked of me in a long, long time. I'm I'm, I'm glad we're not talking about what nozzle type. Um, 
what it is allowed is it is allowed for uh, the pursuit of intellectual curiosity, the pursuit of figuring out where the boundaries are and creating a system of evaluation and comparison that allows for quantified data that backs up the experience that was me by people well predate me. So the, all three of those are really the same system. It's the same methodology to skill acquisition and information manifests in slightly different ways. So the methodology is the same. It's really allowed me to refine that, but also to grow. And this is the opposite of what much, most people think. As, as we've been able to trace ourselves and we take detailed notes and, you know, you know, Jeff, that when I come to your area, I have reviewed the notes of what is wrong in your area and what, where's your gaps. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses based upon their demographics. So when I keep those notes and I keep notes of performance and uh, I've worked from a problem solving method back, I never just copied my mentor's technique, I always started with the notes on what problem were they solving? Not how did they do it? What problem were they solving? And I've so I, it's a reverse engineer. It's a macro to micro. And because of my main sport has allowed me to um, pursue leverage at an elite level. Leverage and body mechanics are simple and easy. And the, the we use are ergonomic and they're sustainable and they're repeatable. So with that, what started when I got asked to show this skill set, I was already using this methodology in a different form. For the, I ran a, a competitive grappling gym from 98 to 2020 in Seattle and we opened originally in 94, my return from overseas and in Bellingham, Washington. And so I had, you know, I would get an athlete that was green and I'd have them competing at nearly high level moderate in, in six months. They would be, if, if whether they were doing judo or submission grappling or BJJ, they were competing at that purple brown level within six months which is just kind of a mark of an intermediate and they were winning in all the disciplines if they weren't winning they were super close they were they were meddling and so when i got asked to show the fires i had already started breaking it down in the same way of how i broke down the grappling but in the last i think i've overestimated uh publicly actually I, I think we are about 60,000. I, I thought for a while we were at 70, and I don't remember where I got that number, but I think conservatively we're at probably 60,000 people. So in the last 14 years, we've been able, as a cadre, to teach 60,000 people. And they all are able to do this in varying levels of performance. Performance, but with time, everyone gets there, and you both have seen it. Where by the end of our program, it doesn't matter who you're working with, that everyone's saying and doing the same thing. So, over the, but what that has forced me to do is 
consolidate that training methodology where I was operating on a three to six month time frame. Now I have to operate in a two day time frame. So it has allowed me to pressure test my, and if I went back to being a grappling coach again, I'm still somewhat active, but not as active as I was, I would be a much better coach because one thing is talking to the other one's the impetus. And now you're listening to the blue scale come back and with reverb and you've got rock, right? So there's that my, my own methodology, my lack of geographic uh, centricism. Like I, these guys, you know, they work in different places and they see what we're doing. And the first time they've seen it, I've never seen that before. Fine. But you don't understand it. So don't comment. Don't be a 14 year old that doesn't like whether he's wearing Nikes or Reebok, right? Like before you critique, you should understand. And, you know, we've, but what it's done is it's taken me out of operating in my own space because I've operated in all regions of the country and they all have strengths, weaknesses and demographical differences. So I've been able to create and that, that, that experience has created a system that is universal and it can adjust to the demographic rather than being a demographically specific collection of tech. That makes sense. The other part of it is like, We've attracted an, an unbelievable group of people that, that instruct with us or coach with us. And those people have brought their own mix and their own specialties. They've taken the methodology and like uh, Jordan Legan is doing wayfinding and smoke. He gave like the rule of threes, you know, the, simple building shapes that are people like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's, it's vetted by the university of Washington's architectural school. And they were actually kind of impressed that a dummy that dropped out of high school figured out the fucking code of how they build buildings, all buildings everywhere, not just in wherever we're individually at. So he's taken that interest that he had in architecture. He's built on the rule of threes and Nate Damonson who's been heavily involved with me for years has built on like, this is what he's learned from helping implement skills. They're all from the same fountainhead of, of folks. And we all like, we're not teaching individually. It's the nozzle forward cadre and everything that's being coming out of it is coming out underneath that umbrella. And it's getting simpler which is the progression, right? As things, that we always think of it gets more complicated the further it gets along. That's if you're chasing technique. Chasing problem solving, it gets simpler. It gets less uh, if this, then this, and more like in these settings, do this. If not, it's here. It's, there's not a bunch of, well, one-off type thing. So that's what that's what I've gotten from it. It's, it's been instrumental in the development of my career, it's been instrumental in keeping me in this industry. I would have quit had it not been for I'm able to thing with keeping me interested and reminding me that not everybody is in it for the pension. Yeah, beautiful answer right there. Um, I think another thing people are pretty familiar with you from is your 
comfort is the enemy of growth FDIC keynote. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you were thinking when you were asked to present this and what you kind of wanted to get across in those 20 ish minutes that you had? Uh, yeah, fuck it. What I was thinking was, and I have been, I've had a great time meeting a lot of people at FDI. And I've had some great experiences. This last year, we had a guy, our last year of doing it, we had a guy uh, come up to me and say, you know, in our classes of 24, two to three days, depending on which version you take. This guy had the eight hour version and he was sounding the floor ahead of him, going into a basement two weeks before. He'd taken the class at FDIC the previous year, found the holes and backed out of the basement with the line on. So there's been a lot of people that get exposed to what we're doing having effect there. So I'm not, I am not bad mouthing it as an ent entity. What I will say is that I am not a commercial guy. I, my mama likes to say I was born count. And when I walk down the street and see the best intentions of our industry, requiring us to to sell ourselves out with buildings that have posters on it that said heroes wear height like first off we shouldn't be calling ourselves heroes second off i don't really give a fuck what kind of boot you wear go find the one that fits your foot right um and and just the, the nonsensical and my final straw with it was we were walking back from getting dinner one night there was a group of firefighters out and they were milling around in the street and they were drunk. Definitely what you want to do it. Develop the comfort. Get so drunk that you're Nevertheless, um, this woman was minding her business, trying to turn right onto the street. And the guys are just standing there, oblivious. And she gives them the polite little two beep. And they turn around and unload on her with language that uh, the guys that I was with, we started moving that direction because we were going to reorganize their manners. We got buried in the crowd before we could get to them. But what this lady think? This is the firefighters conference and I'm being called every name under the sun because I dare want to get through the street that you're standing in. So for me, some of that conference was the way I feel about things but also like uh, it was meant to make us look at ourselves is what it was meant to do and it was meant to say if you're from fucking rural Tennessee having your pager and your radio on your belt at FDIC you're out of your second due like what are we doing and when I walk down the and I know it's a necessary evil it's just one that I will I'm not doing, I'm not putting up with personally anymore. I'm not judging other folks at all. I think there's a lot of benefits out of the conference. And I, I, if I see another fucking, uh, and there's a whole row of them, a whole aisle, and they're all selling the same trinkets. And it, I, that was what that was about. That was about like, hey, let's take ourselves like professionals. Let's not be so cocky in what we know we know that we forget how much we don't and that the pursuit of excellence 
is the ability to practice through boredom. And we miss that all the time. Supposed to be exciting. So that's what that comfort is the enemy of growth. I think that growth is a mindset and intellectual curiosity is one of the key three things that good firefighters need to Real quick, what are the other two? If we got intellectual curiosity, what are the other two? Uh, integrity and the and a work ethic. Not the work ethic to watch somebody on a YouTube video do a skill and then ponder it and pander it as your own. The work ethic to study somebody and what they're doing and actually put in. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of these folks miss. I mean, sometimes at FDIC, people would say, oh, you're the new guy. It's like, fuck, I'm not new. I've been working on this by myself largely for 10 years. That's a, like just because this is the first time you've ever heard of it doesn't mean it's new. Like, and don't be patronizing, you know? And so those are the three. I think um, I don't know. And uh, the pursuit of the mission, integrity, and the ability to say I was wrong, this has changed because of this, all of those things. Those are the three key components. I like that. You kind of hit the physical. The psychological and the philosophical. I like that. Well, deep. One of the I had a. Uh, I appreciate that. There's a a saying that you know what became clear to me. Probably eighty eight. I was in a class because I dropped out of high school and needed to get a couple of credits. Um, and I was in this class, and everyone. It was a philosophy class, and I know I can hear everyone groaning on the internet right now. Uh, the thing about philosophy is that, for me, I was sitting there listening to these guys debate semantics, and I started smirking. And I guess the instructor saw me smirk, and he asked me what I was smirking about. I don't remember exactly how I phrased it. I do remember the phrase because I wrote it down because I wanted to build, I wanted to think about it. The way to remember something is to write it down, helps with your memory. And I, I said that the difference between a philosopher and a philosophy student is the philosophy student is looking for the argument and the philosopher is looking for the truth. So I think with a lot of these things, without self-reflection and self-accountability and being uncomfortable in your own skin, it be, we become uh, fairly arrogant. And overconfident. I mean, it's just that simple. For things that most people don't do that. Fairy tale. All right. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much. And so, like, when, when we were getting your questions, Aaron, we, uh, we kind of decided that, uh, you know, you'd been on a lot of podcasts and talked about, you know, and I was a forward engine work and uh, a bunch of other things. So we kind of asked you what you wanted to chat about. And you uh, had said that your interest would be uh, language, which we all know that you're a, a big one on jargon and then also training. So we decided to stick with that. And uh, we're going to kind of lead this off that, you know, um, we were talking before the show and we heard you say that uh, there's about 62 to 63 languages spoken within a three mile radius of your firehouse. And Which more importantly is within three miles of where I was raised. So growing yes. up. Yeah, it was according to the U.S. Census for 20 years, it was the most linguistically diverse zip. 
That's not to say other cities don't have more diversity as the type of people and where they're from, but to say in one zip code, it because of the nature of my city, most of the immigrant population start in this neighborhood and then build out. And so in different successive ways, right? So, um, yeah, so uh, supposedly, according to the U.S. Census, it was, and if it wasn't, it was damn close. So, yeah, 62, 63, something like that, maybe 64, I don't remember, 60 plus, between 60 and under 70. That doesn't include violence. Awesome. Do you think being surrounded by so many different languages and, and dialects led to your interest in uh, linguistics, which you can also go ahead and tell the audience to your, your kind of background in, uh, in linguistics too. Yeah. Um, I know it did. And, and I wouldn't have been able to tell you this when I was in school, but now that I'm done. So I went, um, eventually I worked in the trades for about four years after high school. And then I was able to put myself or my wife and I we were able to get, get me through. College. And in college, I studied what interested me, which was history a specific branch of history um, and East Asian studies with a focus in linguistics. I'm a, I'm about a class, a phonetics class away from a, an, an un, a third undergraduate degree in linguistics. But at this point, the amount of volume of material that I've read on it in the interim 30 years is surpassed. Um, and I think that my interest in linguistics without realizing it was because when I was a kid, there were so many languages being taught in my neighborhood, spoken in my neighborhood. And everybody, like, it was just, I mean, the, the example that I use is whether I went over to my Tongan friend's house, my Vietnamese friend's house, my people, my friend speaking Yiddish, my friend speaking um Arabic, uh, Chinese, Japanese, whatever was whatever language was being spoken in this home. When I'd go over, when they'd invite me to my friend's celebration of birth, they were all singing "Happy Birthday." It sure sounded different, but they were all saying the same thing. And I was always just impressed with how many ways and sounds. And to me, it was like how many different songs, because that's the only way I could describe it when you're a kid, how many different ways of singing this song there were. And, but they all meant the same thing. And so now as, as an adult, uh, the linguistic aspect of training and the linguistic aspect of communication and people with intellectual continuity, um, you can't say you're for the people all you ever talk about is me this is what i like to do wait a minute it's what we do there's a there's a there's little breaks in language and because as my i really like cognitive linguistics because uh english is such a semantical language how you say things in english is largely reflective of a on a on a secondary secondary level. One of the interesting things is um, this is just a side note, but English speakers are inherently semantical. The language is coded semantical context. Russian is not as semantical. Latin is not as semantical. There are languages that 
that don't lead to inference. They say directly what they mean, and there's another word for another meaning. But English was originally an Anglo-Saxon language, uh, and English is the first language franca of the world that we know of that's recorded. It spreads on the back of the dollar sign in a trade ship, not on the back of the sword. You remember that Russian czar spoke French, didn't speak Russian. And so it was the language was typically the, the, uh, the tool of the conqueror. And the Chinese have had written in military doctrines for 2,500 years. You and, and Americans has proven it with the renaming of First Nations people and the giving of names to people that were brought here as property. I mean, language is a, a very firm form of imperialism and and you beat down their guns and then you make them speak your language. Three generations, they're assimilated. So with all of that, English is unique in that it spread in trade. And what would happen was, is we would get exposure with Anglo-Saxon. And then we had the Latin invaded. And the Latin became the realm of science and faith. Uh, very technical term, right? And then we isolate. We start to morph the Latin rules and the Latin verbiage with the Anglo-Saxon. Then a couple hundred years later, or hundreds of years later, the Normans invade. Like 80%, I don't remember the exact number, but like 80% of English was modified with the French invasion. So now you have the French influence and, and, and then England isolates and the same thing happens and they include that third component. Well, think about it. We grow up semantically because if I want to say something fake, in mundane, I say the Anglo-Saxon ass. If I want to say something that's scientific or technical or religious, I typically use the Latin version. There are there are Anglo-Saxon versions for this word, but based off your your context, you choose a different term. And if I want to say something that's artistic or highbrow, you know, bourgeoisie, I use French. Right. And and so our whole way that we think about our language is based upon what am I saying and what what vibe am I trying to create? So we're very, very semantical. And I think that that leads to a lot of misunderstandings and confusions because. Antics change. So so that's my that's my interest in in. Um, in, uh, I think that, you know, without having a word for something, you recognize this. One of the things that people critique in my curriculum has a name. Sure fucking does. Because without a name, you can't talk about it. You can't, without having gravity defined, you can't talk about launching a satellite. Right? So language is designed to allow for uh, transmission of complex a quantification of the natural world and the ability to discuss something in the abstract. And without it, it just ends up like, you know, the famous sentence of firefighters that st lends, lends itself to stupidity is broke. They broke. If they say that to you, you know some dumbassery is going to come, right? So it's the same kind of semantical view. So the other one I like is when someone makes a statement, but they go, I, I'm going to do this. And their voice goes up at the end, which means it's a statement, but it's actually a question in the eyes of the statement. 
when the voice raises at the end, you know they're asking a question. They just don't want to ask a question because they don't want to be accused. A lot of insight to what's really going on between the ears. So I listen to what people say and I try to disseminate what they're saying versus what they're culturally trying to. And then I start to rehearse. I really like you kind of explaining, you know, how your linguistic, how, how your background led to your, your fascination with linguistics. Uh, I, I want to see how this ha has kind of filtered down to the fire service as well. And you've kind of alluded to a couple of these, um, but we're all well aware that on the fire ground, there is, and really any emergency scene, any high stress situation, really. There's uh, ripe room for miscommunication, for us to talk past each other. Um, is there anything that you're going to do uh, if you're going to key the radio <clears throat> to make sure that you are as clear and concise as possible? Or is there anything that we should be doing when we key the radio to make sure that everybody knows what we're going to say? Say if yeah. you have a couple seconds to recenter yourself, is there anything that you're doing, any self-talk that you have beforehand? I go um, macro just, to micro. That's a okay, great question. Uh, I yeah, look pull at, the thread on that. Yeah, so I look at what's going on and I go, fucking it, this is what's going on. What am I going to have to do? Well, I think I'm going to do this. Can I do that? Yes. All right, I'll tell them that. But I think, uh, but that's that's it. And I am a firm, you know, my own fire department is struggling with this. We, every PIA comes back with, well, we had problems in communication. Like, of course we did. We haven't. The personal conflicts I've had with people in training aren't because, or in the department, aren't because they're bad people. It's because nobody wants to sit down and do the mundane basics of when I say this, this is what. And because there's so many different interpretations of what these things mean, we don't create a defined code system, a jargon, which if I say all clear, it means all clear. Period. There's no debate. Like, this is a great one. Right now, the Seattle Fire Department and the Seattle Police have different terms for all clear. So it means something different to us than it means to them. And the chiefs are like, well, you got to be aware of this. It's like, well, as the chief, maybe we should come up with a word that we all agree on when we're talking about these kinds of things. Like, all clear means one to one and something to the other. Come on. And we know it. Yet we're not altering it. And, the you know, the better your jargon, the less you talk. The less you talk, the more appropriate the individual word. So you're cueing those benchmarks that people need. You're not going on verbal diarrhea about where the, uh, the, where the decon line is because you don't have anything else to say and you feel like you've got this radio and you've got to use it. Uh, so I think... Well, I know as a linguist, not as a firefighter, if our language was more defined jargon, a true jargon, uh, then we would say less on the radio, but everything we said would mean more because everyone would be orientating that statement to what's happened instead of one person interpreting it one way and the other and the other. And really, I mean, since I'm off duty, I can just say this. We got to quit worrying about motherfuckers' feelings. Like, People in boxes are a bigger deal than feelings. And we just have to come out and say, this is what it is. And really, 
it's been, and this is something that I've done a lot of actually when I consult with individual places is finding how to come up with your jargon and, and getting them started. And if what we do know is that if, if I have a term that has 30% of my fire department thinks it's A, 30B, 30C, 10% don't care. If I say, okay, uh, definition A is the right definition for math, then two thirds of the fire department are translating. That's harder for your brain. So what we do is we say, listen, if you determine that 85% of your fire department says this event is an A, we're calling it A, letter A, then you go with letter A and you explain it in your glossary, you know, flashover has been called, you know, gas ignition and all these things. What it is, is this, this, and this. And from this point on, if we say it, this is what it means. We're getting rid of backdraft and, and all these colloquialisms. So if your department is split on a term, then what you do is you, uh, you choose a new term. Don't let everybody be right, but come up with a new term. For example, the indirect attack in the Seattle Fire Department had 30, 30, 30. Of the four working structural definitions, there were three in my agency. So we got rid of it. We said, listen, it's a high to low fire attack. High to low, reach coat seal, and call it that. And it has been called this, this, this. None of you are wrong, but to simplify the the conversation. If I say uh, high to low, this is what it means. So if you're evenly split, figure out a term that makes sense to everybody. If you're predominant, then um, choose that one. But the other one is don't do it in a vacuum. If the three of us were working together and I'm like, hey, I got this term that I'm thinking we've got this, this event is a problem. We've got multiple definitions. Then we will kick it off of each other does this make sense to you? Does this make sense to you? Ooh, I like that part of it, but we should phrase this because so you're comparing the different semantical views to uh, each other and then collectively coming up with something so that you don't say, this is what I decided. You say, this is what we decided and we decided it because of these things. So we talk way too much on the radio because we don't know what we're supposed to say. We've been supposed to say something. And then, so let's say that uh, you mentioned a glossary. Uh, is that fair to assume that that glossary lives in some type of operations manual or tax yeah. ops manual or SOG? And then yeah. who, who would you say does the legwork to define said terms, especially where there's maybe subject some matter, su the subject matter experts. Perfect. So you if you want to talk about building construction, you go to your, your building yes. construction gurus and have them define. Okay. I think that's yeah. perfect. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of departments struggle with, my, mine included. Yeah, and and really, if you don't have one, develop one, find one, and have somebody within your agency apprentice. That's the way to deal with it. And if you don't have one and you don't have time for that, find somebody out there that does. And but don't adopt their method. Have them work with you through the process. So, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then, that makes that yeah, makes a lot know, of sense. You know who does it? And this is a beef of mine with training division. Like we just, like training in the fire service, not a division, but like everyone doesn't, like we had people put in for, um, to do some in-service training that don't know the skill set. 
So they're showing up to a, an event that's designed for instructors to redefine what it is we're doing and what the scope of this upcoming training is. And they're learning technically. Listen, I don't call the cook to teach Marine snipers. Right? I mean, everybody, if they want access to the being involved, then they have to start. They can't start as as a no as a subject, somebody that knows what's going on if you don't even know what's going on. You have to build through it. So we we need in training divisions to create a, a more of an apprenticeship program where there's a group of people that are bringing new people in. That's fine, but they can't be expected to leave. Terrible, terrible design. And it puts them in a bad spot. Yeah, wise words. Uh, we know you're not interested in sound bites, but there's a lot of statements that you've made that have been rattling around in our heads for years. Mm -hmm. Do you care if we throw a couple of your statements uh, out and have you kind of expound on them? No, sure. Yeah. Okay. First I one I got is, is that's true. I do. That's <laughs> fact. I uh, can confirm. Uh, yep. First one we got is is form reduces fear. Yep. Um. If you can define what's going on and you have an expectation of outcome, you have freed your brain up to pay attention to the variables. If everything is chaotic, then you're trying to pay attention to everything. The way the brain operates in decisions is it has form to what's happening. It recognizes its space in this event and it has pre-planned, pre-organized uh probabilities so now when i'm looking at it going yes 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 ooh, that's the group i didn't expect that that's when you can get into problems so um we fear things that we don't understand it's it's we are uh we are monkeys that wear paint and once said and uh if it's and it lightning is crashing from the sky and we got to figure out something that makes us feel nervous. but if we understand what lightning actually is we can avoid getting struck right so once you can make sense of something you can actually articulate what the real risk is versus what the perceived risk and we are perceiving certain events that uh, largely don't occur that often and uh, because of that, we operate from a position of fear, which is non-action and sometimes the wrong thing because we're operating as to what we think might be happening, not what is. So, you know, I'm not, uh, I, a friend of mine, I don't read a whole lot of fiction, but I, I've read uh, a book that I think is, this this author it's from um it's a fiction book and it was written in the 60s uh and he's he's famous for in my mind two quotes of what they are is fear is the mind killer and uh and i think that it fear kills the cognitive brain is where we make good decisions basing it on reality not being afraid of ghosts in the corner the other one he said, which I think is been off topic, but go. Uh, once mankind thought in their 
hooking over to machines would set them free, and then all it did was allow other men with machines to enslave them. That was written in 1960. Telling, it's kind of like Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, written in 84. And so anyway, that's, so yeah, form reduces fear, and it, it and, and risk is managed from competence with a degree of caution, not from operating from a fearful position. <clears throat> I love that. Uh, I love that closing statement. That's good. Um, and this kind of ties into a lot of what we've been talking about. So the the fire service needs jargon. Let's let's hit on that a little bit. Well, we have to get we have to get profit margins out of. Right. Right. I mean, let's be honest. Fire behavior, like I was drunk chasing girls. I was not super successful with the girl. Really successful. Maybe there was a direct correlation, but um without like I was I remember my science class in eleventh grade. Everything really about fire behavior is a high school level. Is high school level science, and science actually uses terms. They, you know, heat, pressure, moisture, grade, uh, rich to lean, lean to rich, heat drip. They talk about thermal dynamics has a language that's been written down by people that date back hundreds of years. So why would we continually change vent point ignition to what was it before that auto? Auto ignition. Why are our documents okay with four working definitions for indirect? Can't really begin to have a conversation as long as there's a bunch of dialects in the industry. What industry largely is made up of? One person's tomato is another's tomato. And I think what we, we need to do is I think it's okay for for publishers to try to publish the best book. I don't think it's okay for publishers continually just repackage and twist common themes and and call it a new name and now charge for a new test break. I think the basics of our behavior should be written down and everyone, everyone should be using those languages so that we can communicate no matter what generation or geography and not have it interpreted in three or four different terms. And one of the one of these showed up with is uh, an example. I was talking with one of my mentors years ago. We'd been friendly for probably twelve years at this point, thirteen years. And I was talking about cellar fire, and the cellars aren't things that uh, my area has a lot. We have a lot of basements, more than one way and out, meant for habitation. I was in a cellar, one way in and out, not typically meant for habitation. And I did this thing, and I got to the. I wanted to ask him about it. He had way more seller experience than I do. It seemed to work. I wanted to know if I missed anything. And I think I did an indirect attack, which for me was into the walls and ceiling and directly down onto the seat. My indirect is a modern combination attack, but years ago it was called an indirect, which is the document that I came up with. And he looks at me and he says, I thought you said you were inside the building. I'm like, I did. I did not. He's like, no, no, no. That's a direct attack. I'm like, no, it's an indirect attack. Into the walls and ceiling directly. He's like, no, it's a direct attack. Indirect is from outside to inside. How many conversations had we had at that point 
where because we used a dialect of one another, I said tomato, he, and because it was close enough in the materials that we were conversating, we made assumptions about what was happening. How much information have I missed in the thousands of hours that I've spent with the people that mentored me because I didn't understand what they were fucking saying? It's fucking embarrassing as an industry. I, uh, I can relate to that one. I started my career in one state and then moved to a different state. And to tell you the, the different names and the different definitions that we had for the same names, like it was incredibly confusing on more than a handful of, of scenes. I'd talk right past uh, another guy or girl on scene uh, and, and they would do the same to me. So uh, I think you're, and I know this is a soapbox that you've had for years, uh, but the, the fact that the fire service needs a jargon or the soapbox that you have for that, like, I could not agree more with that. I've lived that one. Uh, and it's, it's led to a bunch of confusion on multiple scenes for, for myself. And I know I'm not alone there. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, do you, uh, let me just ask you, do you think the Marine Corps would have a different four different definitions for pie the door i really hope not i promise you they don't yeah you know and if they change something for example i think it's tap rack roll now but it used to be tap rack bang you know what they do they publish why they're changing it there's a there's form to why they're changing it and everyone does it that way. nobody gets to hang on and have an officer turn around to you and go well that was all bullshit we'll never do that <laughs> because of a training session, right? And largely what's missing in the fire service is the ability to conversate. I don't, I don't think the skill gaps are that giant. It's the language gaps that are giant. And everybody's gotta be right. And our culture right now is reinforcing that. Be wary of a person that only wants to be around people that think like you. That's fucking scary. That is the difference yeah. between totalitarian and democracy. Democracy requires conversation. It requires, requires the ability to have long-term conversation and to be okay being not right or not completely right. But God, man, we are just, we just yell at each other and tell each other we're stupid and where'd you get that? And that's bullshit. How do they know what they're talking about? What they're actually doing is proving how ignorant and fearful they are. When somebody shows me something new, I evaluate it. I put it through a series of litmus tests. I'm like, oh, that makes sense for them. Or I don't know about that. Here's what I see as the problem. And then and, and we have a conversation. I don't dismiss people just because they're they're doing it different. In order to compare and contrast, you have to put it on the map. I know what I do works. The difference between a nine-minute evolution and a two-minute, 36-second evolution between companies that knew it and don't know it difference between a 456 and a 136 using 20% less air with the same people after learning. There's no, you know, the, the removal of a mean on my time standards in my own place from 814 to 703. Like, and everyone's in control. So there's, you know, you got to be willing to put it on the floor. That's the problem. Everyone says, you know, there's some I from FDNY spouting off, but he's never come to the floor. Let's let's give it a shot. Let's see. You tell me you got a better way to shoot a single, I can prove it. But be ready to to 
to get your face ground into the floor because I've tried damn near every method out there, you know, within some variation. And most of them go into forming what they do. So, yeah, it's just fear is a powerful, powerful emotion. Well said. A lot of uh, a lot of gold and a lot to unpack in what you just said. Uh, a couple things I'm just going to kind of gloss over just in the interest of time, but uh, having an open mind, critically thinking, and then communicating the why. Uh, that's a couple times that you brought that up today. And I know in your uh, in the classroom portions of your class, you make sure you hit that as well and, and could not agree more with that. It's not just the what that needs to be communicated. It's the why. You and, the to the, and the And the Yes, win. very, very, very true. What, what you said uh, with the with the Marines, if they're going to change something, they not only tell people what the new terminology is or, or the new methodology, but also why they're changing it. And I think that's something that in so many domains in life is often missed and is such an important step. Which requires a long-term project of research and development. You don't need the answer right this second. And people are, and, and we need to quit acting like we're doing it wrong. What, what we're supposed to be is continually trying to do it yeah. And and the our numbers prove that you're you know, you're like twenty-eight times more likely to die delivering pizza than fighting fire, according to Ocean. Seventy-seven loggers per a hundred thousand in a year that we killed ten at worst. Like mm -hmm. eh, we don't we don't have the the impetus to uh to to challenge our position because there's no frankly a lot there's not a lot of skin in the game so we need to be pursuing it more like a profession where we look at what got people and go well, let's not do that and let's figure out how to train for that rather than wow this is always what we've done kid just do this i've been around for 30 years even though i've just had the first year 30 times mm -hmm. so yeah i went like we should behave like the trades people we say we are and i since i journeyed in a trade i know what goes along with that which is four years of rigorous study. And if you don't pass the test, you don't get paid. There's a financial impetus. Uh, I got one that, that might seem a little bit odd, but I but you said it and I, I couldn't get it out of my head for a while. Uh, you were talking about having long-term conversations with your wife. Um, you said that you try to take to the power of emotion and funnel it through the filter of the brain. Can mm -hmm. you kind of unpack that a little bit as well? Yeah. My, I mean, we have a, a June 12th will be 31 years. Uh, which you. doesn't, it doesn't fuck. Comfort is the enemy of growth and work is the short. So when she and I, uh, we've never had knock on wood major strike, but we have had periods of time where what we've been at odds, you can't exist as two. She's a quiet type A, but she's every bit a type A and I am clearly. So, um, uh, we get along though, because leadership isn't about pushing. It's about pulling. It's about going first and making it okay for other people to go. And we in our industry talk about, uh, you got to push people to know you don't push anybody to anything. You hold yourself accountable. That's what leadership starts and ends with. 
I hold myself to these standards. I verbalize what standards are acceptable. She holds herself to standards, verbalize what's acceptable, and we engage like that. And it, it, we both are get mad about things, uh, but we don't try to have a, a conversation that fixes something when we're pissed off. We, we look at always our subject because we have time to solve this problem. We don't need to solve it right now. It feels good when someone messes with you in the super, in the supermarket parking lot to punch them in the face. It feels awesome. But unless you're in Washington or, or Texas and you don't have mutual combat laws, you might get yourself in a pinch with that. So it feels good, but it's not always the best way to solve it. And, and really, so for us, we step away and then come back and give what the other person is saying a real honest listen, not, not what I meant. And that, for me, when I realized that most of the fights that we were having started with, no, 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 what I meant was that phrase. And that in itself, that's the key. Like, we'll fucking stop for a second. Take your emotions out of it. You can be fiery about something, but in order to conversate, you actually have to listen. And so that's how we deal with it. And we have set terms. We have set rules of engagement, things that may and may not happen. Um, and we set those very early. We were very young, but I think one of the, the strokes, of, if we have a relationship genius, it was don't take each other for granted and never say something that you don't really mean and is said to be hurtful to get back you got you we got a quick keeping fucking score as on a relationship level and that goes from personal relationships to our societal relationships we got a quick keeping score and just figure out how to fix it that's how we 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 handle it um yeah the other one is you know what i was wrong you're right Sorry, I won't do that again. And hey, by the way, if I start to do that again, because it is an instinct, would you give me a code word? Like, blue squirrel. And I'll be like, ah, got it. And that, so that we can recognize these patterns and alter. And that's, I think, the coolest thing about our relationship is it's not the same relationship we had when we got together. It is so much more pure and simple today than it ever has been which allows us to actually truly enjoy each other's company. Do you think that there might be a parallel in having an emotional discussion with your wife or an emotional confrontation with somebody at the grocery store to the stress that we see on the fire ground? And is there some type of correlation with our ability to communicate as well as we want to? Yeah. Usually endorphin power, right? It, in control, removal of fear leads to competence and caution and, and real pacing. Um, rehearsed, rehearsed responses allow for more rapid, effective response patterns. Yeah, this, this idea that we need to have every variable covered. No, we need to have a set number of things that cover every variable. Finite number of options lead to infinite response patterns, not the other way around. So, yeah, I think it's totally like that. The The... The other one is I think we need to have all relationships follow three basic rules set out, not quite 
in this language, but uh, taught to me by my mother, which is manners are the oil that lubricates. It's easy to be in some class somewhere and have FDNY on your back and see something that you don't know. That's fucking bullshit. I'm not standing there. You're a tough guy right now. It's easy to say that, that you, you don't understand it. I don't know what that is. I've never seen it before. Explain it to me is a very different reaction, right? So manners are the, the oil that lubricates society. The other statement is, and this goes very much in today's modern world, is we never are in such a hurry that we can't for manners. If you're moving so quickly that you can't be polite and you need to slow down and you have mismanaged your time because your movement through society is going to impact and it's going to have a direct impact on how smoothly you may move. Then the third statement is without the threat of violence, there is no such thing as a civil society. Now, I don't mean punch outs or shootouts, but I do mean the ability to have confrontation. Like you have to be able to be held accountable. And if that's the case, then you're more mannered because it's easy to be blustery and say, this is, I've never seen this. It's much harder when someone's in front of you to be blustery, probably be made way more, um, way more curious than standoffish. So those yeah, three things. Thanks for, thanks for hitting on those, Aaron. Uh, lastly, uh, out of these statements is words work and mental maps lead to technical proficiency. Yeah. Um, well, words allow us to work because without, um, you know, a header is a header. If it was the fire service, it'd be a header, a top stick, three longs, and uh, close to a two by four. Those would all mean the same thing. That's how the fire. That's how the fire service defines itself. It's how many different ways we can say. So, with a specific jargon that's intellectually and technically specific, we can actually start to dive off and do work. We can begin to diagnose, to research and development, to say that every most fire departments have four Keystone single families. Things that everyone's going to see if you work it. Not the one-offs, but the most likelies. And when you start to identify that the rooms are configured in this way, that it's a wider than deep with a T followed by a right, masters on the back corner, uh, it's a living room, dining room, kitchen, you know, that all of these things where we can begin to identify all this, we can actually begin to do work because we can define what realm we're working in. Um, and mental roadmaps. Um, so the way the fire service largely does it is they teach a technique. Technique one, technique two, technique three. And there you go. And you'll figure it out when you get there. But what we need to be doing is here's the first technique. This is the base of what it is we're going to do. And now we're going to draw another your mind. Now what we're going to do is have you go between those two. We're going to tell you how these two are related, what principles they hold, and how they're connected. And we're going to have you make those connections physically. And what we're doing there is we're wiring your brain and you're, you're wiring your brain with a material that's known as myelin. And the more you use myelin, the thicker the myelin gets and the thicker the myelin gets, the less environmental short circuits we have. 
So if all we do is teach technique one, two, three, I say three, that space in your brain fires. Say one, that space fires. I say two, that space fires. But if I draw connections and you all know the curriculum, so you know what those connections are, everything is governed by three. I draw those, those connections. Once I say one, your forebrain goes to one. Your subconscious, the electrical current shoots out the wires that have been strung in your brain and the, every pathway and space that's intellectually connected fires myelin. It's, it's, it's road mapping the mind. And that's a very oversimplified version of what's happening. But if you make a dead end because uh, you, you, you wire the wrong direction, that will also fire and it will take active retraining to shut that wire down. So what we should be doing is building these systems where people can go click, click, click. And that's, and from having those mental roadmaps, um, they are able to spin their Rubik's cube. I think this is a good segue to begin talking a little bit more about training, although it's it's kind of been woven throughout all of this. Is there a foundation to your training philosophy or, or pedagogy? Yes. There's where, where, what is that? Is that Fitz Posner? Is that like where yeah, where Fitz, is Fitz Posner, Dreyfus, uh Klein, all of these kinds of folks, but it's also a lot of the unspecific authored military studies you know all of the you know everyone's like oh the, the book geek yeah the geek's great but it comes from there's a bibliography and you should read the bibliography um <clears throat> so it comes out of all of um all of these different touches that i've had in different training methodology a lot of it actually comes from since you've asked uh a little yes a little in a little weird but comes from uh, the Soviet model for training combat athletes, which they worked on. So the Soviet Union for years was trying to prove their doctor cultural dominance by their success at the Olympic in sport, right? So yeah. they took convention, they threw it out, and they studied it. And they did stuff with like, at a world-class level, at this weight class, who is successful and with what technique? They not only marked them out in shorthand, they interviewed. So they knew that if you went attack, 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 didn't go one, two, three, one, two, three, or one, two, if you altered your cadence, that you were going to be successful. They knew that at six foot and 190, I needed to work on an inside trip, not a shoulder throw. So the shoulder throw is the first technique. The inside trip is what's going to win. So they created this whole system, and it all goes back to post-World War I um, army that were done and, and how to get people to do things, because they were not, they were all about non-convention. They were about creating a scientific performance-based model. So for me, my initial uh, training was was from them. And then when I got out of high school, or got out of high school, got out of college, it took me a couple of years to get into the fire service and I had nothing else. So I got hired by Seattle Public Schools to teach ESL, English as a second language, for a short amount of time. And then I got hired by a, a private school 
that was a classic school. So they taught Latin and they taught in a classical, you know, arithmetic or uh, grammar, arithmetic, rhetoric, the classic methodology of, of classical education. And the woman who was the headmistress was named, his name is Gwen Williams. And Gwen was the first person that took swollen ears and big grips and was like, you can transition this into this cognitive context. This is the brain science. You have the physical, you understand how to create drills, but this is what's going on in your brain. And this is what's going on in your brain in a classroom versus a non-classroom setting. And so she was really into the brain science and she mentored me. Uh, it was was an understudy for for two years and a lot of my methodology comes from this performance-based sport and gets filtered through this lady that was the headmistress of a classical school and really i use that classic methodology of grammar jargon arithmetic it's rhetoric and conversation in everything in my relationship, in my fire service. So, you know, Fitz Posner is nice. It's easy. There's also a lot of stuff done by a guy named Don Drager, who was instrumental in combat sport, was also a Marine in Korea. And he did some studies on breakdowns of percentages spent in those three phases, the cognitive, associative, and autonomy. And so, you know, my, my, my bibliography is very, very long, and most of this stuff is more academic than it is public culture book written for me. Written for men as an athlete or as a coach, they don't play, they don't eat. So that's where it most. But yeah, Fitz Posner is a big one. Dreyfus is a big one. Klein, that's a big one. Or Uda Loop, prime rec recognition, prime decision making, all of that stuff. But then um, Gwen Williams and classical, classical education models date back thousands of years. I like how you have this kind of hybridized version of so many different disciplines, whether it's sport, whether it's education, whether military. it's military trade that you've that you've dealt with as well, and just kind of made it your own. Uh, obviously, there's what I think is so uh, interesting with so many things is there are so many parallels in so many different industries um, and arenas that completely parallel what we do in the fire service. It, and I think it, you're a great example of that. I appreciate that. I would say, actually, I have a hybrid. I've experimented with it and I have stripped away the veneer. All when we're, what we're talking about now isn't those technique. It is principle of learning, whether I'm teaching my kids, uh, my oldest kid as a lacrosse player, what check as a long stick he wants to use for what setting he wants to use each check in. And like he'd get a takeaway and he'd come off and I'd be like, wrong, that's a slap check. That's not right. That should have been a poke check or that should have been a lift check because you missed, you know, so it doesn't matter what. And so the parallels, I think aren't, I mean, I know what you're saying and I appreciate it, but I don't think it's parallels. I think it's a principle. It, because human beings behave in basically 
a few set ways. It is the principle, and it's recognizing that principle no matter what veneer has been hung off of it. It's, it's, it's again, looking for the truth, not the argument. So I, I think that the universality of it is that that's what that's why it works. And I'm not trying to come up with anything in anything that I do. I'm just trying to be good at it. <laughs> You can take it, Nick. Okay. I, I like what you said about the universality of the principle. Um, another concept that is universal that you've been championing and developing for the fire service for years now is just highlighting the need for systems when teaching specifically hands-on skills. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk just a little bit more about why systems are either A, neglected or B, necessary for the fire service? Well, systems are necessary in order to solve problems. Uh, mimics can only use their skill set in that exact, their brain is predisposed to use that skill in exactly the same context. But if we start by saying every fire is more or less the same and that there are subtle variations, then we should be able to operate from a base standard and just twist and tweak. It's The, the best example is a Rubik's Cube. Um, a Rubik's Cube has like a trillion variables, but it only moves in two ways. And when I show, I mix it up and I show a Rubik's Cube kid, the Rubik's Cube, they look at it 20 seconds, they close their eyes, they fix the fucking thing. Never fix one ever without taking it apart, right? I mean, there's a trillion variables, but they know that really there might be, but the variables that they need to deal with is this one and this one. And I think one of the cool things about the Rubik's Cube is that a, a full cube is three, three or four threes. So you could say hose, engine, uh, you, you know, you could say building construction, you could say ladder carries, like ladder, four stores, all of this stuff could fit. So all you're doing is taking the cube and mixing it up. And a good cube kid has the, the mobile algorithm to go click, 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 click. And then when they're clicking it, the, the blocks on the back, the ones they can't see are turning and they're visualized. That's the algorithm we should be going for. Too many people, when they hear algorithm, and I think I've been guilty of not thoroughly explaining it, where it's if this, then this, if not, then this. It's not a linear algorithm. It's a series of spatial, of, of things that are spatially and contextually orientated. And your job is to look at the cube and go, well, there's only three hand lines. Well, there's only three ladder carries, and there's really one major force. There's one type of search that we're going to do in this setting. Boom, 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 and it's done. So I think that um, systems allow for that. Uh, and without them, you, you just can't get to that level of expertise, which is where we should all strive to be. Excellent. Now, when it comes to to training, Aaron, do you think quantity or quality, which which one uh, plays more of an important role in, in your mind? Quality. I, I, a quality plays because most of skill acquisition actually occurs after the training session is done. So to be clear, and I think this is one of the mistakes that I know you and I have talked about, you have to see people go through their class and they've got to get to this point, this point. You've never seen us do that. At the end of the class, we're always at the same point. 
Um, it, it takes the time it takes, and there's no shortcut for that. There's a ways to to fine tune it and cut the fat away from the bone. But at the end of the day, people require a certain amount of time, and it's more important to be thorough and explained and then do rather than do and explain while you're doing it. Uh, so your preamble allows for your, it may slow your first training session down, but it speeds up all the rest of them because you're not having to go back and fix false narratives. Um, the other one is that there is a relationship. I think it's really, I mean, what we've found is it seems like, and it varies, but it seems like the sweet spot is do either one, two, rest one, two, one, two, three, rest one, two, three. So if you're, you're off beat has a number of beats and you don't walk off and have a smoke and do it once and say, I've got it. And you're watching it go because you've already done it. Your body, your brain is when it sees it, it knows what it feels like. Those, those things are going off. You're watching it happen. Now, that's a major part of learning. So I am less concerned with um, getting a gajillion reps. I'm more concerned with getting 10 reps well. And that also follows all of the brain science in the last 30 years. That Gladwell 10,000 rep thing is complete. It's just nonsense. It doesn't, it, we've proven it wrong. So let's, why would we continue to use that? Okay, so what do you think are some ways that we can make our training uh, higher quality? Uh, be clear and deliberate on its purpose. Be mission driven, not yeah, not because I, you know, you guys know this. I don't particularly want to instruct. If my phone quit ringing, I would quit going. I've never intended to be a fire service instructor or coach. But as long as my phone calls and rings, then then I'm going to go because somebody's putting themselves out there, and I want to give them opportunity to 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 try something. But I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to quit saying we want to have an impact. I have never wanted to have an impact. I the reason I do what I do and the way that I do it is because it's my own ethics it's the own the way that i approach everything my parenting relationships um i just i am rigorous and i apply these principles universally and over and over again and uh so you can't be there because you want to be there you have to be there because somebody else wants you there and if you go at it from that realm and i approach my training from the concept of i'm not educating anybody I'm sharing with them a skill set. I assume everyone in those classes understands everything that I'm saying. I just explain it several times to make sure. I know that's not the case, but I make the assumption that they're that they are capable. They are they clearly are. They wouldn't be there. So I don't come in with the I'm going to educate you. Really, I'm like hey, you guys are doing just fine. It's cool that you're willing to challenge your perspective. Let's let's work through this together, and then at the end. We can have that conversation. So the first thing is, why are you there? Is the mission like, you know, there's guys that don't want to teach sounding the floor, but people fall through holes. And 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 if you're going to go out and start teaching out, if you're getting asked to show things around the world, regardless of what you need, 
other people might need to be able to sound, right? And, uh, but to not do it means that you're actually not about the people, you're about what I like to do, which is not, it's what we do. So if you keep your mission in mind, then you allow yourself and you don't film yourself and put every training evolution you've ever done on YouTube, you'll free yourself to be able to grow. But if you put something on YouTube, it's locked into place. It's locked into a time. And people are going to assume that that's where you're at. And if you're there 13 years later, after 60,000 people, you died a long time ago. And so try to make your systems simple. Uh, quantify everything that you're doing and make your mission and your purpose of the training session clear. Break it down into, don't worry so much about full-fledged evolutions. Worry about teaching a skill or reviewing an old skill and then putting those skills together in probable combinations. But when you start to drill, you shouldn't be teaching new skills. You should be putting multiple skills into context. If we just did that, we'd be better off. I like that last line. <clears throat> uh, broad brushstrokes here. When it comes Good. to the fire service, what are we, the fire service, doing well, and what could we improve on? Uh, we could we could improve on, we're doing well with success of the mission. We could improve on how we prepare for it. We can improve on cultural standards that are acceptable and cultural standards that are not acceptable and get out of the club fraternal bullshit and get into a trade. Like, you know what makes Marines or Green Berets, proud of being Green Berets and Marines, it's what they do, not the fucking patch. They, they've all shared this experience. And so if we could be more paramilitary that way, I think we would be, you know, without the yelling and screaming because we aren't 18. Uh, I think we largely do well on runs. I think that we're largely um, fairly successful. I think what we're not good at evaluating whether we can be more successful in preparing professionals, not just club members. I mean, there's a lot of fraternity jackets out there, a lot of fraternity jackets that don't share the same skill set, even though they ride on the same rigs. So I don't know. I think that that I think that what we really need to do fundamentally is we need to indoctrinate our new people a culture of professionalism, not some narrative like we're knights of the round table. You know, think about all the nobility and bullshit that we peddle. Like, listen, bad people do good things, and good people do bad things, and we have both in the fire service, right? And, you know, everyone wants it to be this Arthurian cycle, like, look at us, we're the protectors. Well, don't forget that Lancelot, who was everyone's favorite knight, slept with Guinevere, which was his best friend's wife. He was a shitty fucking human, you know, and yet we romanticize it to such a place that we make exceptions for bad behavior because of our mission. It's not not appropriate. I think we should be promoting that aspect and like being hard charging and patient and and mature. Actually, I guess that's it. Quit being 14 year old boys and girls. Yeah, it's definitely definitely a good answer. I, I want to go back. I I think we missed something, but I I absolutely love this uh, philosophy that that you have, and I know we've talked about it before. 
when it comes to, uh, you know, training, uh, probability versus possibility, I mean, you, you see people now fucking dangling cars off of sides of buildings and be like, we're going to extricate this car, you know, for training today yep. versus, you know, uh, the last time that they did, you know, they stretched a hose line was eight months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, remember, uh, I think this goes back to one of my personal maxims, which too, which is uh, the pursuit of excellence is the ability to practice through boredom and not have to make everything exciting about single legs. I'm also not excited about hip grips. Their expectation, they're my expectation. Uh, what I'm excited about is process, the process of building people to a point where they can succeed. The process is what we need to be involved with but there's also things like you know guys running around doing drills where people are streaking around half clothed fighting each other in the front yard like what the fuck i've been on fires where people have tried to run back in but only a couple of times most of the time oh they're running out and i'm not sure whether or not from an operational standpoint but like let's be let's have this honest conversation if there's someone trying to go back in and I'm on a hand line and you're a chief, do you want me to go in and put the fire out or fight with this person on the outside and try to pin them to the ground to keep them from going in? Which which do which do we do? And it's that whole thing about making everything fucking exciting and extreme and then filming it and putting it on YouTube to show everybody how hardcore you hardcore is getting in the mat. And cauliflower ears spitting and doing Dan Gable 500 single legs aside after practice, thousand single legs five days a week after practice. Practice that's the mark of just doing it right. How many did you throw in practice? It is conceivable that in one week of after practice practice, he threw more singles than he did in his compiled competitive career combined. 5,000 singles in a fucking it's like what. Like, so, you know, not, not super secret, sneaky reverses. It was just the basics. I think that's the, and if you listen to him talk about it, yep, that's, that's the, that's the, Euro dreams of sushi. Like you grab rice until you can grab within three kernels of each other. Not like come up with new ways to put mayonnaise on the top of sushi which is god awful now both of you because of where you live should know nothing about sushi because it's a tapeworm but there's no sea close to you brian there's no sea close to you so don't do that. and it's a weird obsession that indianapolis has with seafood like there's sushi restaurants and oyster restaurants all over the place but the, all the oysters came within 45 minutes of my house which means they're not fresh even if they're on ice it just it's a tapeworm Nobody needs to put mayonnaise on sushi. I'll agree with you on there. And yeah, uh, yeah I live in uh, in no coastland. So yeah. I only get sushi uh, or sashimi when I go towards the ocean. Yeah, uh, got to be close to the sea. Yeah, well said. And it's the first three letters of my city, S-E-A. Sushi's I like delicious. It. <laughs> I like it. All right. Yeah. Uh, we're going to start landing this plane here. Uh, so we're going to ask a couple of questions that we ask everybody here. But if you had a crystal ball and you could see into the future, what do you think fire service training and learning would look like in 10 or 20 years? Or what would you want it to look like is maybe a better way to phrase this. 
I think I think I have um, laid it out, buddy. I think that you know, over the course of your questions, we've kind of laid out what I would hope it would look like. Now, the question is, do I think it's going to look like that? Well, that's going to rely on individuals deciding um, that the way we're doing it isn't right. And that, you know, let's, let's not be unclear. One of the largest unifying training things in North America is fire nuggets, you know, started with uh, Ted Corporandi. I was reading, remember when reading it, he was in charge. So the, the mantle that the nuggets has reestablished is training for training, not training so that we can go drink and wear our fire helmets in bars to try to pick up picks for 25. We want everyone to know what we do. That, that's not, that's not the professionalism that I'm looking for. If you don't have skill sets, you don't have tradespeople, then you don't have a trade. And when you don't have a trade and skill sets, you don't have the ability to pride in what you do. So you have to have trinkets. I think Fire Nuggets model that, that you guys are using has been, and the people involved in it have been hugely a benefit. I would hope that people listening to this realize that you know, irons and ladders and you guys and, the, and and what we're doing all come from the same place. And so imitate that. Try to recreate or re re replicate that. Don't try to do the shitty stuff that was done to us. Like you have to quit keeping score and decide that that wasn't right. And now we are moving forward. And I think that people need to firmly start with themselves. Don't like so many people like I want to have an impact. I want to have an impact. Well, just do you. I've never wanted to have an impact. Any impact that I've had is simply because I've held myself in quiet moments as well as public moments to the same standards. And that has made it okay culturally to do that. It's it's do you remember um and this is a conversation we've been having a lot in the in my own fire department, but for me. I think in the last year, I've really been able to quantify uh, what I think leadership is. And I think that leadership is this concept that everyone throws around, but it's pretty well defined. And I look at, you know, war fighting, uh, which is a Marine Corps document that dictates exactly what it is, what characteristics it is, and, and that it happens at every level. There's only leadership. There's no such thing as informal leadership and all this, this type of stuff. But end of the day, it is pull, not push. Uh, it's pull. You there, Sil? No, it's pull, not yep. push, which means you you do what you're supposed to do, and you model it, and you just keep doing that, and that will have an impact. You don't, You can't push people to do the right thing. You can show what the right thing is. And, you know, so two examples of this. My kids were talking, this is a couple of years ago, we're driving in the truck and one kid had gotten into a physical altercation with another. And the kid had to come. So, and, you know, he he was talking and, and I was like, well, you know, you could have done this, you could have done that. I, I understand what happened. And my one kid looks at me and goes, Dad, we watched you do the same thing last week. Remember that guy in the parking lot? 
I'm like, uh, yeah. So it was just the same thing reapplied. So I told them what they could do, but I had also shown them another way to deal with it. Maybe in that case, wasn't the nuance wasn't um, made clear. But the other part of that is, I'm a big history buff. I don't want, as you know, I don't do a lot of vision or pop culture stuff. I I just I do documentaries and I read. And uh, there's a book written by an author named. Stephen Ambrose, who is a World War II historian, um, a citizen soldier, the one that I think he's most popular for. Is and I think that there is an example of what I'm talking about in that book. And then I it showed up in the TV show, too, which is they're down behind a bird. And I remember the soldiers talking about winners saying, yeah, you know, we all respected him, but not all of them liked him because he held himself and he demanded the same. And some of the guys were, you know, all raisers, ah, you know, but we all respected him. And one of the guys, the guy that I think Joe Torrent, his name is the guy that had his knee blown off from below. And, and he talked about, well, we're behind this berm and the Germans are on the other side and winner says charge. We all look at him and nobody moves. And he jumps up and goes. And that's when they charge. That's the essence of it. For all these fancy classes with cool titles, that is the essence of what it is. It is discipline, accountability, and being clear. And doing it, not demanding it. Not, not demanding before you do, at least. But I think yeah, I, would like to, I, I would like to see that. I like that. I, I like that. Uh, I like how succinct you were uh, using that analogy. Um, okay. Last ones that we got are kind of rapid fire. Um, and, and you can, uh, you can pass if, if need to. Uh, what's the best class that you've ever attended? And just to preface all of these, they do not have to be fire service related at all. Uh, it could be, uh, grappling it could be anything that you've ever done but what's the best class you've ever been to yeah i hosted a guy named igor colonel um in grap uh in college it was two professors uh edward kaplan every i had him every day for my whole time and and, and then another guy named ed vida actually who was a linguistics professor his linguistics like He'd walk in and he was just so enthusiastic and he was such a big brain. I was just looking at it going, holy hell, this is, I don't have a better way to explain my enthusiasm between holy hell because uh, I don't have the words for it. But I remember him doing experiments and with us. And for example, one of the ones was, is Klingon a real language? And I'm like, come on. Yeah, so is Elvish, according to the Tolkien guys, right? But, you know, Tolkien was a linguist. That's what he was trained, an Oxford-trained linguist, yes. But anyway, uh, and so everyone's like, no, it's a science fiction show that's kind of cheesy. And he's like, wrong. It's a growing language that has a phonetic, semantic lexicon. People are fluent and can express complex ideas, and the language is growing to fit its environment in the real world it is ever and it's based on these three first nations languages we're up and down the west coast unconnected 
So he's like, by every measure of what a language is, it is a language. It just stems from a unique perspective. But isn't everyone's language at some point, someone going, that wall behind you is blue. I could say that, you know, the wall, the car. So everything, you know, so that class was, his classes were, those two guys' classes were fantastic. But like I mentioned, Gwen, Gwen Williams was instrumental. And, and I think when people ask me training questions, she gets overlooked. Uh, I usually mention her, but writing my sources, she's, she was phenomenal, gave me a lot of really good stuff. Um, fire service-wise, I have really enjoyed uh, I took a, a lot of my classes very, very early. And there was one that I took that was when I first met Jeff. And that one was a, a special one, not necessarily, I mean, the material was great, but the fact of the matter was, is the way that this guy treated someone that he doesn't even know where this guy's city is. This new firefighter was clearly inexperienced, didn't share the same verbiage, and for him to take 20 minutes of time out while everyone that's big name is vying for his interest and his attention, describe what's going on to this, this young firefighter until he got it. And then it was like right on. I was never patronized for not knowing it. I was never belittled and told, well, you must just be stupid or you guys, I get all these fires and you don't. It was this guy going, hey, man, this is what you need. This is what's going on. And at one point, I remember him saying something that touched him. I don't think you're visualizing the fire. about, And that was, or something along, it's a long time ago, so that's one of the paraphrases. But th that was a phenomenal, because that was a mark compared to everything else that I've taken where I went. And because I didn't have the right accent or the right job coat, I was wearing a logger's coat, uh, I was dismissed. And this guy wasn't dismissing. I'd read his articles and uh, he was treating me with a, a dignity and respect that are do all humans following the first rule. Manners are the oil that lubricates society. And uh, that was a huge class for me because that showed me what it could be if you may. And then I was fortunate to other ones. But uh, those two classes, I would say my favorite class and you know i'm pretty intimately familiar with the material i've been his sounding board but jordan legan's wayfinding and smoke really grown into being uh a phenomenal program that builds right out of this same fountainhead of information follows the same methodology and he did a presentation in virginia that i think um was you know a, we talked about things to make it better because we're all part of the same group, which first one of the questions you asked me was, I don't think the nozzle forward is a teaching group, it's a group of friends that have each other's back. And it's really a think tank that my, my folks are contributing every bit of any effort I am. And I think that that class was like, if I was to see it for the first time and didn't know him, I'd go, that's fucking and I'll still say it's fantastic. But what it's become from that point is next level. And and like it's it's super cool to to watch. So that that class is one that's new. Um, you know, I've never taken their program directly. We were friends. 
the two methodologies, the two um, mindsets of the cadres really merge. But you know, irons and ladders, those Absolutely. guys do a bang up, bang up job, and they are dynamite human beings. And I think that that that's that's kind of where I'm where I'm at. Yeah, I can. Uh, I'll second to the the irons and ladders. I haven't been to uh, to Legan's class yet, but I have. I bet I've had four or five people come up to me in the past six to twelve months talking about his wayfinding and smoke class, mm -hmm. um, and everybody with with nothing but amazing things to say about it. Yeah, we one of the last things we ever did on social media, and we didn't, as you know, do much, but we put out. Um, uh, he wrote up his survey. His data we put on the nozzle forward and everybody filled it out and man the community was fantastic he got thousands and thousands of responses he was expecting for and so yeah it's 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 great and it's all the same fountainhead of information and that's you know what the quadre we all talk about is it's not aaron fields and the nozzle forward it's the nozzle forward whether you're getting the oyster which is uh Jameson's thing where you're getting drilling for function or you're getting wayfinding, or you're getting nozzle forward or rule of threes, you're getting the same methodology taught by the same group of people. There's so much cross-pollinization that none of those presentations are ours individually or ours. I think that is fantastic. Yeah, well said. Um, I'm going to flip these, these next two because, or these last two, because I really want to end on, on, on a specific one. Um, you mentioned documentaries. What's a documentary that we should watch or rewatch, um, or, or a podcast or any other thing that, that, that's kind of long format that, that we, yeah. um, boy, there is a, a fantastic one on that. I just watched that the first Third, talks specifically about the algorithmic methods I was talking about, which is called Rubik's. And it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it's an analogy I've been using for years, and then to see it described by someone else, pretty cool. Uh, my all-time favorite is Jiro Jutsusuchi. Mm -hmm. um, that one is, uh, that is, that is the way you're supposed to approach life. It, and I love the fact that guy was Eero was completely unenthusiastic about the film. He wasn't he wasn't doing YouTube's of him making sushi. He was like, "Yep," and I just do it over and over and over again. Um, I had a my one of my crewmates, my, one of the guys on my tailboard, actually had sushi there from him, and he's like, "It was every bit what you would think it was." He's like, "I'm a big sushi fan." And this was ever had hands down. Um, there's another one. I went to call beautiful. I, don't know, I can't remember the name of it. It's about um, a, a arena in uh, the one the principal one of the principal dancers in a New York uh, ballet group that busted her hip. And uh, it's the documentary of her attempted uh, recovery. And it is, uh, you grow to appreciate something that's so artistic 
which could be a real good example for the fire service. And if I was going to do something different with what I've done, I would change my titles. I wouldn't call it a hip grip. I'd call it position one um, because there is semantics applied to the hip. Right? That's what I know in hindsight. Um, and I'm saying it publicly. I still use hip grip, but in the journal, the document that I'm writing, it refers to this economy of if you are implementing this for the first time, just say position one, two, and three. Um, but I think the fire service could be good to understand that valet is, there's a form. You follow the form or you don't dance. Position one is position one. Position two is position one. Position three is position three. But how you put those things together varies on the dance. But they have objective standards for what their bodies are trying to do. It's not interpretive fucking People just go up and flop all over the place in loose cotton pants, right? Which is the way the fire service treats a lot of these fires. Just show up and and, and be it like interpret the scenario, like go figure it out, like let the music move. Nope, be more like a ballerina. And that that documentary is good from a an aging firefighter that's now fifty three. Um, it's the whole process of. That if you do the right work, then when it comes time and you're not holding on to it, you're moving into the next. And to watch her not feel like, at least initially, uh, that she was ready and to watch the whole process, it was it was heartbreaking. But it was also for me, um, at the time that I watched it, was insight what's the own process. And to start considering um so that one's a good one uh you know i there's a those are the ones that strike me right now. uh there's always something coming yeah i kind of like uh you know now this is rattling around in my my head but i we, you've you've said and and i appreciate the analogy between Metallica and Marvin Gaye. I, I think kind of where I'm at right now, I appreciate this ballet versus uh, interpretive dance or hip hop yeah, dance yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I think yeah. I like that. Yeah. All yeah. right. Last one. One of my favorites. Uh, what's the best book you've ever read or books? That's a super hard. Yeah. Um, fiction. Oh, no, let's start with nonfiction. Nonfiction, I started reading little excerpts from it when I was pretty young, um, which is meditations. Yeah, really. You know, I think one of the least stoic things we can do is quote some philosophy on Facebook. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but for me, it's been something that I've read multiple times since I was a woman, and it's, it takes a long time to assimilate. But now watching my oldest and youngest kid live those virtues and approach their life with that without having to relearn something, that's the only thing that I know. Um, and there's a, a lot of, there's a dichotomy on cynicism. Which is Cynicism gets misunderstood in modern world. I, but I'm, I'm equally a cynic in the classical sense of what, um uh, I there's a book called um 
God, it's it's hilarious. It's it's something English language, and it's written by a guy uh, that uh, there's one called Secret to Words, I think, something like that. There's another one called Duel, explains dueling culture throughout time and why it's so critical. Um, the, the one that I was talking about, kind of a three, put it out, but the uh, one that's it's, it's written by a guy that wants to simplify the spelling of English language to make it completely that pH. And, and he's quirky, but he goes through where all of these uh, vocalic shifts happen. And there's this really cool process that he gets so that you understand why pH is F. And how Norange, which was the original rent word for orange or something closer to that, an N-O sound at the beginning of the word orange, got morphed to an orange because of our own language backdrop of that. So it's just, it's that one was, I, I remember laughing out loud multiple times because he's just pointing out the absurdity of the whole thing. Um, I think that... Uh, uh, I think another one is the rise and fall of the Third Reich, uh, which I read in school that really cued me into what fascism is. Take a lesson in that right now is neo-Nazis march openly in Italy, Germany, um, and that the tendency of our own political system right now to create uh, fascists from the left and the right. All I have to say is you're too liberal or you're too conservative, and I shut down what you have to say. It's like that's the mark of fascism. They remove what you can read and they remove what you can They control socially and legally what is acceptable, and that is dangerous. The, you know, the, the rights to free press and, and these things are, are, are critical. Uh, I, amusing ourselves to death was very difficult by Neil Postman because it, you know, I read it three years or four years ago and you're just like, holy shit, we could have seen this coming. Um, those are some really big ones for me. I think fiction wise, um, oh, oh pillar, three pillars, uh, five pillars of wisdom, whatever, uh, T.E. Lawrence's book from Lawrence of Arabia was big for me. Uh, I read that. It was really difficult, very difficult to read. Um, and uh, fiction-wise, I think my single favorite, there's two books, fiction, that I'm not a huge fiction reader, two that stand out for me. Um, one by uh, Neil Gaiman named American Gods, because it's about ideational determinism and the power of thought and value. And, uh, and then the other one is written by the guy that I was mentioning earlier, Frank Herbert, which, which is... And I mean, these are both books that are relevant and use fiction as the medium to discuss without offending. And I, it, those two are fantastic. Well, perfect. I'm glad because you said a bunch of books that I've never even heard of. So I'm going to uh, make sure I add those to my, to my queue. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, man. Is there anything else uh, as we kind of wrap up that you want to uh, pass on, pass along to our listeners? Uh, no, I think that's, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that I'm m more than likely most people haven't tuned in for the whole time. And what I would say is if there's something that was said 
that doesn't make sense, don't misinterpret it. Contact me and I'll explain it. And then if you disagree, disagree knowing what I was saying, not assuming what I meant. And, uh, you know, I've tried to be pretty methodical with my word choice and things like that, but that, that makes mistakes yeah. and gets off. Well, and you're only half of the uh, the communication uh, um, highway, right? So sometimes even if you're sending it potentially yep. properly, people are receiving it improperly. So make sure that we're we're steel manning each other when when somebody makes a point and, and we are on the same page. Throw back at that person as you kind of alluded to, like, is this what you're saying? It's exactly right. what I meant to say. Or no, I didn't mean it to come across like that. Here's what I was trying to, to say. So yeah. the, I, I the, know this... Go ahead. But the other part that I was going to mention is some folks have looked at the hat that I'm wearing and noticed the logo and thought mm -hmm. to themselves, I thought you were a Kraken fan. I would say you can't ask for a fiscal pickle heart. Before the Kraken, I was a Canucks fan. Now I'm a house horn. And if they're playing each other, I go with the Kraken. Nothing wrong with rooting for your Canucks uh, is as as well. So don't don't send me hate about oh, you were a Kraken fan. I am, but I can't ask me to have a fickle heart. I can't just turn my back on my lifetime of being a Kraken. Uh, so yeah. yeah, don't question his his don't, fandom. Don't question my patriotism. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. As always, I had a blast talking to you. Um, we really appreciate your time and your willingness to help spread the cure. Also, one big last thank you to Vanguard Safety Wear for sponsoring the Fire Nuggets podcast. And until next time, thanks again, man. Yeah, good to see you, pal. Take it easy. Yeah, you too. See you. See ya.